Okay, so we're at the JST um, FRF training camp and I've got an opportunity to sit down with Harry Thompson, who is the MD of Fitness Racing Federation, which is the British governing body of fitness racing. And you've had an opportunity this year to host what is effectively the world's competition or platform for fitness racing and it's the international functional fitness worlds yeah <laughs> you might have heard his name banded about because mm. you were involved with strength and depth amongst other things um earlier on in your involvement with crossfit yep. initially uh, i guess for people who maybe have seen frf as a acronym banded about and if3 what what are these two bodies and what are they trying to do for fitness racing in this country and around the world and why on earth is it involved with CrossFit? Yeah for sure that's a really good question I think um, what's really important to understand is um, what all those terms mean and it's often easier to use an example where there's less emotional energy expended um, and something which is perhaps a bit better known. So the way I would explain it is to use um, triathlon as an example. Um, what we're trying to do with the International Functional Fitness Federation and, and, and here in the UK with the Fitness Racing Federation UK is to provide governance structures for the regulation and development of the sport. And they are absolutely essential if the sport is ever going to reach the potential that it is capable of. Whereas if you look at something like the CrossFit Games, uh, that is a brand. And in a triathlon context, it would be Ironman. It's a version of competitive fitness. It's a very good version of competitive fitness. And it's something that has a, a real integrity and strength to it. But you would never get Ironman into the Olympics and you would never get a commercial organization able to unlock public funds. So at the international level, the International Functional Fitness Federation is trying to play the same role as the International Triathlon Union. And the explosion in triathlon didn't come until they got into the Olympics And then you've got all of the growth and participation that followed. Whereas for us in the UK, we support that. But we are also very keen to get recognition from the sports councils of the UK that competitive functional fitness is a valid sport. And until we do that, then there is very, very little opportunity for us to develop the sport in the UK to its full potential. So that's the role of sports governance and and hopefully that explains a little bit about um, the distinctions between CrossFit Games as a sports property and a brand um, and what we're trying to do with governance and you know something like the World Championship. So triathlon is very much a success story yes. in terms of that working out. How different is the situation that fitness racing is in alongside CrossFit to that of perhaps MMA and UFC where actually they're not necessarily they're two separate bodies but UFC has been the one that's been in the public eye and MMA is not Uh, that's a really really good question Lauren Um, and it's another example of where uh, the sports property came before the governance so uh, mixed martial arts has actually been around for decades Uh, but the first commercial property to uh, crack the 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 code as it were to make it a viable commercial sport was was the ultimate fight championship and even then they went through a couple of iterations and a couple of failures um but it is a uh, a sports property 
the UFC in the same way that Ironman is or in the same way that the Premier League of Football is or the National Football League in the United States. Um, it's a sports property. You can't unlock funds or get mixed martial arts into major international sporting competitions if you're a commercial entity. It has to come from a community-owned body. So there are, I think it's the International Mixed Martial Arts Federation, I think has been established, and they've recently merged with uh, a competitor, I believe, um, and they've come together to try and do what the International Functional Fitness Federation is doing for mixed martial arts. Now, that doesn't try and replace the UFC. You can't replace the UFC. I'm actually a little bit sad that you've got the McGregor fight on the Saturday night of the World Championships, and I don't know how I'm going to watch it. Um, because who doesn't want to watch McGregor fight on his first fight back? I love it, but the UFC can only do so much. And of course, it's not a bad thing, but the UFC gets rich from the UFC. Um, it doesn't actually do anything for a local club. Uh, it doesn't help them put mats on the floor. It doesn't help them to improve the coaching. It doesn't help to get people in the door. Um, you need governments to do that. So uh, hopefully that answered your question. What's the step-by-step -step plan for making this happen? So, another good question. Um, I don't know if you I'm know... I'm full of great questions. You are full Sorry. of great questions. Full of great questions. Uh, do you... I don't know if you like Monty Python. <laughs> not much. No, not much. I know of it. So, it was <laughs> yeah, it was a bit before your time. I'm showing my age. Um, I, I, you know, essentially the most important thing is, is that we stay together as a community because if we fracture and you end up with um, multiple versions of governance, then at some point somebody has to make a decision and um, we don't want to leave that decision in the government's hands. So we have the International Federation and they have now got uh, over 40 national governing bodies that they have uh, incubated over the last year. Um, they have a head start now, so there's no point somebody coming on and setting up another one. So the first step is having an international federation and making sure that there's only one of them. You don't want the Judean Revolutionary People's Front and the People's Revolutionary Front of Judea. So first step, set it up. Was that the Monty Python reference? It was the Monty Python <laughs> reference. Anyone who I'm glad I clocked onto that. Anyone who knows the life of Brian will know precisely what I'm talking about. Um, so that's the first step. The second step in the UK, and we set this up two years ago, is to get the athletes on board. And so we spent a long time um, behind the scenes getting people like Steve Fawcett to, to come on board. Who is now the chairman? He is the president. President. So uh, he is the titular head of the organisation. His responsibility is to represent the organisation to the community uh, and also to other stakeholders, and he does that brilliantly. He's lent his reputation to the federation because he believes in what we're trying to do. And what we've actually seen with the athlete roster coming in for Team UK is, is that actually pretty much all the best athletes in, in, in Britain have also now um, put their own reputations to it and they're supporting it. So I think that's the second step is get the right athletes involved. And then you've got the, the basic regulatory things. Um, we need a membership scheme, which we're going to be launching in October, and they have to hit certain numbers. I've written a blog on this and you can see it on the FRF uh, UK WordPress site. But um, those numbers are quite low. It's only 1,650 people to, to just clear that hurdle. Um, we're obviously aiming for a lot more than that. But um, set up a membership scheme, recruit to that membership scheme, and then you have to jump a series of hurdles um, with Sport England, Sport Scotland, Sport Wales, Sport Northern Ireland. Um, and if you clear all of those hurdles, which are relatively simple to do, you know, make sure you've got a well-constituted board, you've got proper articles of association, 
certain policies, anti-doping, um, diversity, uh, very important aspects like that, but you can achieve them. And then you need to have two years of accounts and run two AGMs, and, and we've nearly hit those objectives. You then go through a pre-application process and then an application process, which need to be 12 months apart, and if you clear those, you're a recognised sport. Now, being a recognised sport isn't a guarantee of funding, uh, and that's where something called the whole sport plan comes in. So as part of your application process, you will support your plan for grassroots strategy, your plan for an elite level pathway, your plan for um, adaptive uh, elements, your plan for anti-doping. And you can get elements of that plan funded through public money. And I think, again, I've written another blog on this which goes into you know, a, a similar size sport to us but is recognised. You know, that sport had attracted over £16 million worth of public funding over a 10-year period. How much public funding have we had into a facility like this or into competitions? Not a single pound. And it doesn't matter how successful CrossFit Inc. is as a, as a training methodology, and we all support it. We all support what they're trying to do in terms of getting people fit and healthy. No matter how wonderful to watch the CrossFit Games is, that doesn't bring a single pound into uh, development of the sport at, at the lowest levels. So that's what the whole sport plan does, and, and that's what we're trying to do with public funding. Um, and if we get that right, then we put ourselves in with a shout of bringing funding into this. But we also need to be commercially viable without that funding being available. And, and a lot of that comes down to the membership scheme and uh, potentially leagues and, and the biggest thing of all, which is a credible national championships owned by the community, um, which, you know, we'll be launching that community level one ne uh, this October for next August. How do you expect that to, to plan out? I know this year in deciding the team that went to Worlds, it was very much based on inviting... It's an invitation. The, yeah, an invitation of the top level yeah. play. Uh, Athletes who had gone to regionals, athletes who already had a name for themselves. That's right. And what's the plan now to make that more accessible, much like the Open? Yes, I mean, we had, uh, we had to achieve two things from the Nationals this year. The first thing we did was we had to get the right athletes there because, um, you know, we want to go to the Worlds and we want to win. Um, and you've got to start with the right raw material, and, and that's the athletes, as you've identified. And the second thing is we had to run a, a credible selection process using the format the Olympic format, if you like, um, for competitive fitness. Um, but that isn't a way to run the national championships going forward. Um, so what we're looking at doing um, for next year is having a full community-owned competition, uh, individual medley and team medley, so uh, all age categories, and uh, the team medley will be male-male, female-female format. Uh, looking at running that over the weekend of the 16th to 18th of October, wrong, 16th to 18th of August, um, at Bath University. And that'll make accommodation cheap because we can use some of the 3,000 rooms you know, at cheap rates. Students aren't there, but we've got world-class facilities. And um, we're hoping that when people think, well, how am I going to spend my money on competitions next year? Um, I love the Open and I love what it is, but if I give that money... It all goes offshore. You know, none of it comes back into the community. We're hoping that people look at that and say, do you know what? Actually, I'll enter this national-level competition um, because I can get what I want from it in terms of ranking and benchmarking and, um, you know, affiliate community-building aspects of coming together. Um, but by the same token, that money then stays in the community and supports its development. And we're hoping people draw that connection. Do you think that the changes that have recently documented with CrossFit HQ, um, especially with the regionals level being dropped, has that aided 
to an extent what you're trying to do with fitness racing well i think i think the first thing we'd want to say is you know sitting here as a representative of, of the federation is that um you know, what we're doing is not trying to replace the CrossFit game. You can't. It's an absolutely wonderful competition. And I understand and have blogged on this about why those changes are being made. And there are really good reasons for it. But there is an opportunity for us here now. Um, I don't believe that online competitions are a credible way to identify a national champion. Um, you need to get athletes in a room facing off against each other to see how they respond to the pressure of, of that competitive um, uh, challenge. So we think that our national championships, as we're conceiving it next year, we'll, we'll find a really credible national champion. So there is an opportunity for us. Um, another opportunity for us is that um, we can start to help prepare our best athletes. You know, th these athletes, they're wonderful, um, wonderful um, performance but they're really scrabbling around to do it right. You know, they're working professional hours, but they're amateur in terms of the revenues that they're able to generate from it. So we've met with the athletes uh, in the conference at the Nationals, and we were talking to them about what do they want from an elite-level pathway? What, what type of support would they really benefit from? So that's something else we can do, is actually help our best athletes to prepare to compete in the CrossFit Games, to get there. Why wouldn't we do that as a federation? The athletes want to compete in it. We want them to be the best athletes they can be. So as a federation, we can help them do that. And then I think the, the other opportunity for us is, is at that grassroots level is only one person from the UK now realistically can progress from the, from the Open to go to the Games. Um, if what you want to do is benchmark your performance, you want to come together as a community and, and, and do the qualifiers you know, just please consider doing it around a national championship that's community owned. Um, because you can get a lot of those benefits, if not all of them, um, but then you can come and actually have a really good chance of competing. We'll be taking 64 people, male and female, 64 males, 64 females, into the open category, 18 to 34, um, 16 male and female in each of the age categories, 35, 40, 45, 50, um, and then uh, probably eight male and female at the teens level and eight male and female at the 60 plus level. So actually there's a good chance um, if you're in those kind of age groups that you're going to be able to come to a really top quality competition. And, you know, if you look at the people involved in the federation, um, you've got people like me, Ollie Mansbridge, you know, Craig Massey, you know, we know how to run a top quality competition, Rain Hill, Strength in Depth, Inferno Racing. Um, we've reached out to others, you know, who are supportive of this as well. You haven't got people competing here. You've got people who are trying to make this work. If you come to the Nationals, you're going to get a really good quality competition. And we believe it will be the best competition in the UK in terms of the concentration of talent there. Going back to your professional athlete pathway, how do you envisage that working? Um, and what trajectory? I mean, the athletes we've got at the moment, effectively... They are trailblazers, but they won't actually benefit. So what are you hoping for the youngsters coming through in terms of talent ID and how you're going to get them through the necessary steps to yeah. get to a world I think stage? Your first point's well made in that um, most of the athletes who um, are supporting us now would not benefit as elite athletes from what we're trying to do. But they're very conscious that if they don't do it, then there'll be nothing for anyone to come after them. We've got Taz Nadim here um, today training downstairs and he's 18 and if we're successful in getting this into the Olympics for 2028 then he will be 
28. So this is the time frame. He's perfect for him. Yeah, it's 10 yeah. years, 10 years to get into the Olympics. Um, he will be in his absolute prime at 28. So he will benefit from this. But everyone else downstairs, they'll be in their early to mid-30s. They'll probably be just past their prime. So the first step for us in terms of elite pathways is actually building elite coaches. So, um, and that's what you're expecting of the team downstairs. That's right. I think a lot of the, we're going to put in place um, a, a program, um, a, an athlete to coach program. Um, and of course, you know, they can go on CrossFit Level 2 or CrossFit Level 3 courses and get a lot of knowledge, but that doesn't necessarily make them a coach. So, what we're looking at focusing on with that that development program for athletes to coaches is, you know, all of those other essential coaching skills that enable them to work with elite athletes to get the most out of them in terms of their performance so i think that will be the first step um and then there'll be a, a general uh program around uh, talent identification um but that won't necessarily be focused on getting people onto podiums or winning competitions around the world i think that's more about who's got the base potential regardless of what sport they're currently in so we'll be looking at gymnastics, we'll be looking at, at, at weightlifting as two obvious examples of sports where perhaps, you know, those 18, 19-year-old kids, there'll be people there who want to do what we're doing and we can bring them into a program and put them under the tutelage and mentoring and coaching of those athletes who are downstairs now but who are now optimised as coaches um, and we'll see what we can produce as a country. And then with that kind of organisation... You know, if we can get ahead of the other nations in terms of how we've done, you know, maybe we can create a success story like British Cycling. You know, that's down to administration and organisation as much as it is around you know basic genetic talent. You know, we've made the most with British Cycling of the genetic talent that's out there. Um, how do we replicate some of that success for this sport and create stars of our athletes? Because that's how we start to penetrate the general population and grow this and get more and more people into affiliates and independent PTs and independent gyms and functional fitness facilities around the nation um, is by having sporting success uh, around the world. How important is the potential role of broadcast going to be in your overall vision? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Look, there's a, there's an essential problem with everything about this, and and that is the low commercial values of, of the sport. Um, you know, there isn't a lot of money in the sport, which means you can't do much. You know, you're relying on goodwill or um, you know asking for favors or scrabbling around for pennies, and 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 that just isn't sustainable. So what we have to do is we have to develop the commercial value of the sport, and the best way to do that is to get eyes on what we're doing. Now, traditional broadcast is part of that, but I think that. That's all developing rapidly with kind of over-the-top platforms. And there's a lot of work going on in the background about how we create a platform where um, we're putting good quality content and making it available for people. And not just from the competitions which we run, like the Nationals, or that we host like the Worlds, but, you know, if you've got something like the Battle of Britain, you know, and you've got good athletes there, you know, how are we capturing good content and making that available and putting it into a context that's relevant to people? Um, that's a, that's a good way to start. So effectively what CrossFit initially did. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, but the problem with that is, is that it's tra everything's trademarked around it. So um, you, can't, you can't leverage it the way you would think. And even CrossFit has not really made the successful leap from the community into the general population. Um, and you see that with who's sponsoring them. 
and that's the, that's the key thing. You know you've generated a commercial value in the sport when you're being sponsored by an electronics company or when you're being sponsored by a professional services company, solicitor's firm or an accountant's. And I know that might sound dull and dry, but, you know, apparel companies and nutritional supplementation companies, they're in that space, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's easy. It's a ready-made audience, which is already their it, audience. It's already their audience. And, 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 and because it's, you know, it's essentially it's a monopsony in that, you know, you've got a couple of dominant suppliers and then they dictate the term, the, the, the commercial terms to, to the event organisers or to the, um, you know, the, the governing bodies. And therefore, there's no real generation of commercial value. What we need to be doing is getting the general population interested in what we're doing, and we need to be um, creating stars out of those athletes and household names. I mean, my boy, um, he was summer holidays recently, and I made him do a social media audit of every recognized sport in the UK. And, uh, you know, come back to table tennis, my bugbear, but, um, you know, the best table tennis athlete in the UK, I mean, how many followers do you think that that person has on instagram 900 and something Eighty-seven thousand. Oh wow oh so apologies to table tennis. yeah no 100 <laughs> percent. you know this is this is what's really important is, is that when you do your um your basic competitor and competition analysis on our sport it's tiny despite all of the success of crossfit it's still an absolutely tiny niche and if you compare you know, if you take Sam Briggs out with her half a million followers, um, I think the next biggest UK athlete is probably Phil Hesketh, perhaps, with maybe 25,000 or something. Well, he's a third of the size of the best table tennis player, player out there. Out there. Um, and then if you compare the size of like some of the big event organising companies, because you know, we're so young as governance, we can't really compare it in a valid way. But, you know, even the big sport, even like the European Championships or um, Strength in Depth or um, Rainhill, they're a fraction of the size of the European Championships for badminton. Mm. And that's even though the basic participation levels between badminton and competitive fitness are not, not dissimilar. So, so th- how, how do you then bridge that goal? Well, one, it's going to take time. Two, it takes organization. You can't do it without sport governance. So you have to be organized. You have to uh, have a narrative. You have to be able to explain why your sport is relevant to the general population and why your sport is relevant to the government. Now, for us, I think that's quite an easy argument to make because if you look at the UK active strategy and you look at how the government's trying to tackle uh, diabetes and obesity and all of those related health issues... I think we've got a much better story to tell than perhaps other sports have. So even though there's an inherent merit to what what we do and what our athletes do, we haven't yet really made that argument very well. And I think the main reason for that is is that it has to come from a governing body and it has to come from credible sources. Um, You can't expect CrossFit Inc. to do it. It's not their job to do it. They've done a brilliant job of what they do, but we have to have that narrative and we have to be making that narrative and that's essentially what a recognized sport can do if you go and sit down with um you know sport england um and explain how your whole sport plan is going to work and how it's going to bring more people in and get them active then you can unlock public funding that's one of the ways you start to build up 
the general level of um, social media reach because then people are coming in and they're looking, oh, right, look at that format. That's an amazing competition. I can now see how what I do in my Nuffield Health Facility, you know, on a Monday and Wednesday and Friday, I can now see a pathway to that athlete and what they're doing. And if you've got national ranking systems and benchmarking and all the other bits in place, then they can start to say, oh, right, you know, I can not only benchmark myself against where I was six months ago, I can benchmark myself against other athletes who are deadlifting or doing a 2K row or, or doing Fran. So I think that's how we do it. You know, it's, it's time, it's being organized, it's having a clear narrative, it's communicating that to the right people, and it's making sure that you are relevant to that general gym population. 4.4 million people go to the gym every week. They don't have a sport. You know, we are their sport. Yes, they might go and do a triathlon, etc. But and that's good. But we are that that thread that moves through that. And what we're trying to do is get one percent of that 4.4 million to become a member of our federation, and then we have a commercially sustainable body uh, that doesn't need public funding to implement these, you know, uh, development programs, etc. But you know we have to have that narrative and that conversation. I mean, we've discussed a few, but what are the biggest hurdles that you have come across so far in trying to achieve this? Um, so I think, I, think, I think there's a, you know, you have to explain what it is, you know, because people, people use CrossFit as a generic term and that confuses things. So you've got to look at what CrossFit themselves say about what CrossFit is and what CrossFit isn't. CrossFit is a training methodology. The CrossFit Games is a sports property, but it isn't competitive fitness. It's a the most successful sports property and brand in competitive fitness. But what you're doing in a box level competition or what Strength and Depth does or what Rainhill does, they're not CrossFit competitions, but everyone says and refers to them as such. And that creates a confusion. So that's the biggest hurdle, is explaining the difference between CrossFit and competitive fitness because people think they're exactly the same and that competitive fitness is CrossFit and that CrossFit is competitive fitness. That's just factually untrue. But people are emotionally attached to it, so you've got to challenge that in a way that doesn't become threatening. And you've also got to respect CrossFit's um, commercial rights and um, trademarks. And, um, you know, we will always do that because we support what they're doing. And, and I think it's fantastic and they're, how their training methodology works. But that's the biggest hurdle. Everything else after that, I think, becomes quite simple. And when people engage with it and say, oh, OK, OK, CrossFit's like the Premier League and you're like the Football Association. OK, I now get it. And that makes sense. So once people have made that link, then everything becomes that much simpler afterwards. So tell me a little bit about Worlds, because it's being hosted at Lee Valley in London. Yeah. Um, you are not necessarily putting on the competition, but you are hosting it. So, so yeah, we're responsible for organising um, and paying for it. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. yeah, the important things. The, the important things, which has its um, uh, you know, but it was a, it's an honour for us to do it um, because it provides us with a fantastic opportunity to uh, advertise what we're doing, but also, you know, to launch a membership scheme and to launch the, the nationals. Um, but the World Championships themselves are an essential step to getting Olympic recognition. And this is the second iteration of them. The first one was last year in, in California. We sent a team of four over there um, to, to compete. And uh, having it here um, is a real opportunity. And 
when you look at the quality of athletes coming, not just the British athletes, but the ones that are coming from around the world, you know, 50% of the, the male field is games or regionals um, appearances, 60% of the female field and 50% uh, of the uh, teams you know, have got regional quality athletes in them. So it's the best field of athletes ever assembled in the UK, without question. It's better than TAG in 2014 or whatever. That's not to denigrate that competition, but you, know, you look at the numbers. Um, it's the closest things to the regionals that will ever come to this country, um, the best field, and I think the competition is going to be absolutely fantastic. And the, the British athletes have a good chance of winning in each of those categories, individual medley, male, female, and the team medley. So uh, you know, we want people to come down and watch it. Can you just tell me a little bit more about the date and the time and the location yep. and how people can get and find out more and get in touch? Yeah, for sure. So um, it's the 5th to the 7th of October. And it is at the Lee Valley Athletic Centre in London. Uh, and you can get your tickets either from the uh, Eventbrite uh, page for FRF UK, which is frfuk.eventbrite.co.uk. Or you can go on to the 2018 Worlds website, which is quite simple. It's 2018worlds.com. Um, or you can just ping us a message on Instagram or Facebook and we'll point you in the right direction. Um, it's going to be a fantastic weekend and if you want to learn more about you know, what the Olympic format looks like, the sixth, sixth, sixth test format, um, if you want to come and see our athletes go up against some of the best athletes from elsewhere in the world, uh, see a level of competition which you wouldn't otherwise see in the UK, and really you know, to see it at its, almost its very beginning, um, then, then please come down and, and, and watch. It should be brilliant. Okay, thanks very much, Harry. Appreciate your time. Much appreciated. Thanks for yours. Thanks, Lauren. Cheers.